0: Dee! Deviant Women. The podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. (laughs) This is a very grand opening statement. I'm trying to be enthusiastic. Good. glad. Are you feeling enthusiastic? I'm trying really hard. Oh my God. I'm talking in a child voice. That's that's because you've been
1: entertaining children all day. I have.
0: So, this is a piece of information about me. And my history is uh, many moons ago, straight out of high school, my first job out of high school was uh, I was a children's entertainer. I know that might be hard to believe with the potty mouth that I have. Um, But, yes, I spent many years singing and dancing and entertaining the small folks. And uh, you have returned to your roots. I have. Recently I have been uh, in dire need of cash. (laughs) So I've gone back to the singing and the dancing for children. Well, no, no singing and dancing, but a lot of high-pitched... Happiness and a lot of like, hey, how you doing? Oh, and,
1: and ushering funny. small children into mm. lines
0: yeah. and photographs. a lot of ushering small children into lines for photographs. Hey,
1: I do know those fields. I used to work in That's the right. magic cave. I was Santa's elf. Well, I was we a were pixie. pixie right? Yeah. We were technically pixies. Why? Uh, because the place where I worked, David Jones, they're very fancy, mm. very upper middle class they're more pixies and elves so they're, they're pixie yeah. people
0: or is that because the elves would have sued you if you tried to pass yourselves off as elves perhaps yeah maybe that could have been it yeah. yeah. Well, look, I, I've got a little bit of energy left Good. after my day of hurting and wrangling children. You've got enough energy to tell us a story about a deviant woman? I do. Excellent. Yes, I do. And you know what? After the last couple of episodes <laughs> that we've done hard, long, cryy kinds of episodes. <laughs> yeah, hard hitting episodes. We are, I mean, look, obviously, a lot of the women that we look at, their lives aren't all peachy keen. No. You know, and today's figure is indeed uh, another person person whose life has its ups and downs, mm. but we are going to be doing something very, very different. A and little bit lighter. Yeah. And hopefully it'll bring a little bit of lightness back A few into more it. lols. A few more lols. Less tears. Yeah. There's definitely some dark moments in mm. her life as well. And look, I guess this is maybe a bit problematic to think about in any kind of podcast where you deal with historical content, but there is definitely the distance of time yeah. that makes things less
1: traumatic absolutely it does and well in the more recent research that i've been doing into thanatourism which is dark tourism mm-hmm. which is one of my other loves this is part of that theory that yeah. we when we are separated by time from traumatic events they are easier to deal with because they don't exist within living memory and yeah. when something doesn't exist within living memory it becomes not aligned with like mythology but it we kind of digest that information i think in perhaps maybe more similar ways than we do with something that happened in our lifetime, which is what we were dealing with with the last three episodes when we were talking about trans rights and LGBTQ plus rights and abortion rights Mm. and reproductive rights and things that are as present and fucked up today. Mm. (laughs) Maybe not as they were but remain so.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, this is a really interesting idea and it's actually not going to play too much of a role in today's story but I do think it's worth thinking about in terms of um when we look at historical biographies when we do go back in time you know like a few years ago my sister and i went to an exhibition about the titanic oh yeah and at that exhibition when you go in with your ticket you got a boarding pass And the boarding pass was of a real person who was genuinely on the Titanic and you took that around with you the whole time and you you knew who you were and um, it was quite funny because my sister was a bit annoyed because she was like a (laughs) third-class passenger with like a whole bunch of kids. and cattle class. In cattle class. And I, funnily enough. Were you an aristocrat? I, You know the woman I got Mm. was a cabaret singer (gasps) who was like, On her way to America to start a new life as a cabaret singer with her... A rich lover? boyfriend lover. Oh, that's fabulous. And my sister's like, yeah, of course you fucking got her, didn't you? That's of course. <laughs> and and you went through the exhibition and at the end of the exhibition you could find out whether you lived or died, right? Oh. And this was part of it. And It's I,
1: dark but engaging, isn't it? It is. Dar- it's a it's way of investing very your empathy and creating a quite an effective response from the audience.
0: Absolutely. And this is a really useful way of getting people mm-hmm. interested in history, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember saying to my sister at the time, I was like, you know what, give it another 50 years and this exhibition could be a Nine Twin 11. Towers. It could yeah. be a 9-11 exhibition yeah. and you could get your little ticket that tells you whether you jumped out of the building, whether you survived. But this is exactly what... This is what happens this with is, history. This is what happens with exactly. history. yeah. You know, and it's the same with all the wars yep. in all Well, I had
1: existence. this similar experience which is an essay that I've been trying desperately to write for actually about three years now, about when I was in Berkheim in mm. France researching witchcraft. And at first I was there excited about everything. I went to the Witch Museum and I went to the Witch's Tower and I was excited as anyone else was to mm. be there. But then it started to dawn on me actually that the witches' Museum and the Towers were fantastic and they dealt with the issue really well. Absolutely fabulous. But some of the other things that happen around these towns mm. were – they kind of rubbed me the wrong way because they are distanced by time. And so there's a witch festival where people dress up as, you know, medieval villagers and, mm. you know, chase young women around. And then there's a wine called Les Sorcières, which means the witches. And it's called Les Sorcières because it is grown on the spot where the, you know, women were burnt to death. At the stake. Yeah. And I just thought if this had been a wine that was named after maybe another particular group of people who were persecuted and... In much more recent history. In, in more recent yeah. history, we would not accept a wine being named after them. Yeah. Would we? But and because it's
0: so distanced in time, it's, it's Somehow okay. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting discussion to have to kind of... As I said, I mean, this is just a general discussion about what we do as researchers more broadly mm. um, rather than having a particular impact on today's story. But I think it really is a very interesting question yeah. about this distance of time and how we look at stories and how they affect us yeah. when we do have that sort of that retrospective nature of mm. being able to step back from mm. it so where are we, where are we going today so how
1: far back into the past we're are going we to be going
0: back to 18th century india that's okay wow so cool. just for something completely we, different we haven't
1: been in this century for a while and we haven't been in this part of the world for i don't have we even
0: been to india we haven't before? been to india specifically no, no i don't think we have so i just thought we'd change it up go somewhere completely different And go to a different time entirely. Sounds excellent to me. Who are we with? So, we are with someone who's actually, to be honest, their real name is a bit of a mystery, but she is most famously referred to as the Begum Samru. Uh Now, a Begum is that's actually a title that is often given to women of high rank, Mm -hmm. royalty, or powerful. And influential women. Ooh. So we'll find out how she gets this title. As in?
1: Of a particular class of women or do you have to earn it? You can earn it. Right. You can
0: earn it through particular acts. Particular acts and uh, look, hey, she uh-huh. earns her title. Okay. She earns her title. I already
1: have a few ideas about maybe what those acts might entail, but
0: yes, we'll let's find delve into out. <laughs> look, she's a really fascinating figure, and we're going to start our story in 1753. Good. So we are going quite far back, not As far back as we've been in some other episodes, but But far back enough in history that we've got that separation of
1: time that changes our empathetic response to a subject. It sure does.
0: (laughs) And we can can also move through the mists of time, I feel. I like moving through the mists of time. Good, I like mist. Yeah, good. So we're moving through the mists of time and 1753 is close enough to an exact date. All right. Um, (laughs) So that means you don't know for sure. Who can say? But this is the date that's often attributed to her year of birth. Good. Hooray. And as I said, we don't know her actual birth name really, Um, although some sources cite her as Farzana. But... This name also might come later in her life mm. as well. And as I said, she was most often referred to as the Begum Samru, and that's how she's remembered in the history books. But she also did eventually change her name to Joanna. Oh, um, that's unexpected. And that is an unexpected name. And we will find out why as we go along. Was well, it English weren't really in India at this point, were oh, they? Oh, they were starting to get their claws into India. So yes, the name is
1: Joanna, that's quite. European,
0: right? Oh, it is.
1: Okay, I'm sure this is going to come up in the story. I'm assuming. Yeah. Just, G- judging by yeah. the look in your eyes, yeah. let's okay. just park.
0: We'll park that there okay. for now. Okay, just going to park it, lodge it away. We're going to park it like the prams I was parking today. Good. Like the park it in the pram parking area. It's to your right as you enter the tent. <laughs> Actually, it's not. It's to your left as you enter your tent, but that's fine. So park it in the par- in the pram parking, and. Her exact heritage, much like her name, is also a bit of a mystery. Mm. So there are a few different stories about her youth. She may have been the daughter of a nobleman from Katna in Mehrud, which is uh, in India, or she may have been of Muslim descent. She may have been of Kashmiri descent, also in India, or she may have been the daughter of an Arabian nobleman. So basically we know virtually nothing. Virtually nothing. (laughs) But a few different versions of her childhood have circulated. And the version of her childhood that's attached to the Arabian nobleman is one of the stories that I think has been perpetuated the most. Yeah. And it's an interesting one. So I will share it with you. Good. And We like stories. That's why we're here. We do like stories a lot. (laughs) So in this particular version... She is the daughter, as I said, of this Arabian nobleman and one of his many wives. And this particular wife had been a dancer and a sex worker in the red light districts. Now, when the Arabian nobleman... She's getting hers. Sorry? She's getting hers. She's she's making her money. She's being an independent woman. I didn't know what the hell you were saying. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I just meant that like in an empowering way. She's like, yeah. No? Well...
0: I think, look, I, uh, that's, am I trying to, am
1: that's I Am I attributing 21st century attitudes towards sex work yeah. onto an 18th century woman? Definitely. Oh, I dear. think we really sorry. can't
0: apply mm. the way that sex work, legal sex work works now. I just want to the way, no. believe. I think you, yeah, you're you being far too, um, yeah. Okay. Yep, yeah, sorry about that. Far too uh, optimistic. All right. So this was where the mother had come from, but she... She married well, right, to an Arabian nobleman, as I said. So we've got some money there and she manages to get herself out of this position. But he dies when our little Farzana is the name that's given to her in her childhood by many sources. So that's what we'll call her as as a girl. When she's only about six or so. And because... She and her mother were, well, her mother was a superfluous wife, right? An extra wife. (laughs) Oh, right. And the daughter then, of course, had no standing.
1: Superfluous wife. That's an awful way to think about it. I'd like to think of myself as a superfluous (laughs) wife.
0: I think that's the only kind of wife I do. You're also primary wife. (laughs) No, I only only want to be superfluous. Single wife. That's it. I'm sure you serve many purposes. Hey, my husband's pretty superfluous. (laughs) Superfluous husband. No. That's a lie. Primary husband. You love him. I do. It's true. But anyway, (laughs) Arabian Nobleman had plenty. Okay. Right. Of course he did. And because she wasn't one of the primary Mm. important ones... And because he would have had a lot more important sons by other wives, they were turfed out on the streets. Oh, shit. So without anywhere else to go, her mother was forced to go back to Mm. the streets, Mm. forced to go back to sex work. And, again, this is one version of her history. So the truth behind it we don't know. So we take this with a grain of salt. We do take this with a grain of salt. But her mother may well have been forced to sell her. Oh. So, I mean, she's on the street, she's got nothing, all she's got, is a six-year-old girl
1: oh god
0: yeah not good this is again where our 21st
1: century Mm -hmm. ideals don't match up because i mean again if we want to try and be empathetic and, and situate ourselves in this world we do have to understand that there are such limited options available to her yeah and that is a valuable commodity and child, oh, even know, though
0: it sickens me to say that Exactly like child trafficking is obviously it's grotesque right it's yeah. absolutely shocking but it's also shockingly common It is today still Today and Just... historically it was pretty much a norm mm. and still exists today it does. of course in the modern world So I oh. guess if we think about the options available to her there weren't many at all mm. And the other thing as well is that, of course, little Fazana, as you may well perhaps look, this happens so, so often in our stories, she was beautiful. Oh, of course she was. Of course she was. Even at six. At six. Even at but six. But that's not a name. Oh, see, I, I, this is the
1: thing. It's not an adjective that should be applied to any six-year-old. To any
0: six-year-old. Well, just in a
1: particular way. Shouldn't. I just wish that it wasn't, though.
0: I wish that it wasn't. So,
1: but this may well also. Unless... She was beautiful because she was so charming and delightful and really loved twirling around and was just super cute. You know, that kind
0: of beautiful. Mm. Oh, isn't she beautiful? She's so delightful and charming. But of course, as with many different historical stories about women, beauty is something that can get you out of trouble. So Mm. it also may well have been that her mother knew that as a beautiful child she would have a better opportunity than perhaps... Some of the poor, uglier kids yeah. might have had. And indeed uh, and she did. this did help yeah. her because the prettier ones that were sold off often were taught how to dance. Okay, so they're becoming more like courtesans. Is yeah. that sort of it? Well, sort of. So this is an interesting thing, right? So whether or not this particular story has much truth to it, the fact of the matter is she did eventually, as a young girl, end up working as a notch girl. Now a notch girl is a dancing girl but this term has many different meanings and many different connotations to it as well. I've not heard of it before. So notch is a British corruption basically of the Indian word to dance. Really? So notch girls are basically dancing Dancing girls. girls. Does that have anything to do with like notches as in like notches in a belt? No. Okay. Not at all. No. No. Okay. Just the verb narch wow. or notch. My Indian pronunciation is of course not particularly good, so yep. our humble apologies. That. But that's the verb to dance, basically. Right. So it was just a corruption of that particular Indian word. Okay. And dancing itself was not really seen as an explicitly sexual or an explicitly immoral act. Dancing was a professional career for many entertainers. It was a respected career dancers would dance in temples they would dance mm. at religious observances dancers would be employed to dance at weddings to dance at parties birthdays wow so it's interesting how so variously throughout time
1: dancing has been both associated with and not associated with sexuality isn't it like yeah today i think dancing in, in primarily is not necessarily associated with sex mm. of course in some contexts it is but in many many contexts it isn't but that's not all been the way particularly i think in a western judeo-christian context where mm. you know any kind of movement of the body is seen as being a gosh
0: dreadful sin yeah and as explicitly sexual yeah but as one writer puts it at the time the term could really basically denote anything varying from the status of a prima ballerina to a lap dancer yeah okay right so it doesn't actually really tell us much at all about the wantonness Mm. of the dancer or, you know, whether or not this was explicitly a sexual sort of act that was being performed because dancing was a respected and perfectly legitimate career that you could have. Well, that's nice to know. It is nice to know. I like a good dance. But it doesn't help her much eventually. So at this time we're sort of getting towards the decline of the Mughal Empire which I'll go into a little bit more for those who don't know about what that empire actually was in a moment but this was kind of the decline of that empire and the rise of colonial powers in India and so I I guess that view about dancers and particularly about Notch Girls was slowly transforming Mm. into much more of an explicitly as you said wanton sinful sort of act. The English and their Prudery. Yeah. And by the 19th century, it was seen as something seedier. It was seen as something attached to loose women, loose yeah. morals and sex work. But in its purest form, that's no, really. not what it is. Cool. Okay. So she was quite a petite little thing. Not just because she was a teenager, but she never got any taller than four foot 11 inches. So she was a... Yeah, that's
1: pretty tiny. ...a little
0: little lady. She could speak Urdu and Persian and later learned to speak French and English Oof. though not entirely fluently but better than i could speak cultural woman persian yeah. so she was clever right yeah. from the outset as a young girl she was quite smart and intelligent and precocious and this showed and it was apparently why while working as a dancing girl and she was only at the tender age of fourteen at this time. Uh-oh. That she caught the eye. Oh, oh. they always catch the eye they they always always catch the old fucking eye. dude. Yeah, and
1: go you, on. Yes, that's I've what happened. I've got my eyes shut and waiting. Yeah,
0: what is it? Well, she catches the eye of a European by the name uh-huh. of Walter Reinhardt Somber. Of
1: course, she fucking did. Of course, Walter
0: Reinhardt fucking what? Som- somber. Somber. Yeah. He bloody well would, wouldn't he? Do you wanna, he like? Would. So she's 14, right? Do you want to just take a random guess at how old he is? You just pick. 57. F- oh, a bit younger than that. 43. Oh, a little bit older than that. 50. Let's just stop guessing. Um, (laughs) He was 45. Uh huh. He would be, wouldn't he? Yeah, because 45-year-old men should be out looking at 14-year-old girls. That's That's disgusting. That's the way the world should work. Why don't we do this to ourselves? (laughs) I thought this was supposed to be a nice episode. Oh, look, it is a nice episode. I thought we were going to have some lows. Look, she's going to make the best out of this situation. You wait and see. Okay. All right. I think, actually, to be honest, I, there's a lot of parallels in her story to Xingxi's story that we oh. had at the start of this season. Yep. So, look, there's good things coming, Okay. Right? Okay, I will take your word for it. Right. I've got my gin and tonic in hand just in case. Good, excellent. Oh, I'm going to have a sip of my gin and mm. tonic too. Let's mm. – hey, we haven't done that since that the first
1: season. wasn't a very good ting though. These are cheap glasses. They're from Ikea.
0: Oh, that's where you've gone wrong. Now, Walter oh, – or let's call him Walt, good old mm. Walt – his heritage is also a bit of a mystery, mm. much like hers. Uh, he was maybe German, maybe Austrian, maybe French, maybe Swiss. Who knows? Maybe a pedophile. Oh, any. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Probably most definitely a pedophile. He was any of a bunch of European things. Uh-huh. But what's important to know is he was a... He merc- had a sense of entitlement. Yes. That's not what I was going to say, but yes. yes. <laughs> but he was also a mercenary. Oh, right? okay. So, like a genuine, like a violent one, like a guy who took contracts for... Yes. Yeah, so. For the, he, Dollars? For the dollars, For the yes. rupee? So he was jumping ship and fighting with whichever side looked like it was winning. Mm. He had ended up in India because he'd eventually enlisted in the French army. And then after arriving in Bengal, he had turned coat and joined the Swiss. That's what mercenaries do? That's what you do. But he was only with the Swiss for 15 days before he... <laughs> Before he decided to desert the Swiss. Uh, he fought briefly for the British and then he went on to massacre a whole bunch of Brits at a very bloody massacre when he began working for the local Nawab or ruler in Bengal. Uh-huh.
1: So basically, so, this
0: is a guy whose morality we can pretty confidently throw in the bin. Doesn't have much. Yeah. No. He's gonna go where the money's at. In the bin. In the bin. And by the time he met Farzana, he was the leader of his own mercenary army, so, which wow. was basically shopping out to whoever would pay That's the biggest sort of like dollars. That's
1: sort being the leader of a bikey gang, isn't it?
0: It's very similar. Yeah. yeah. Your loyalties will shift and change. Yeah. Sorry for any bikings who are, listening Sorry. Who are like, no, I'm, I'm a super loyal. surprisingly large cohort of bikey fans. <laughs> we, do. <laughs> we do. We are right up their alley. They love us. So shout out to our bikey fans. Now, Walt, as I said, was about forty-five. Pazana about fourteen. And stories differ. It may have been that she consented to marry him, or may have been, may have been, or simply. I'm sorry. Look, we will get. I've had a hard day. (laughs) I'm sorry. It may just have been that Walt bought her outright. We don't know. But I'm going to choose to believe the story about consent. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. But the upshot of this, right, is that. (laughs) I don't know what the upshot is. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to come up with an upshot, direct upshot. Look, eventually things work out okay. Okay, good. I mean, mean, look, we're we're parking that in the pram
1: parking. All right. But, again, if we think about, like, marrying a mercenary, look, if it's consensual, you probably know what you're getting into in the sense that you're like, yep, this is a person who will probably be able to defend me and... Look out for
0: my interests, and he's probably going to hoard a lot of gold. Yeah, lots of rupees. Yeah, for sure. And again, as I said before, this part of the story reminds me a lot of Shing Shi as well. Mm-hmm. That kind of getting out of one situation via marriage, which I mean, f- hey, for women throughout the oh, centuries, yeah, marriage the is how you yeah primary means to power. That's you right. Do what you got to do yeah. You make the alliances because basically marriage is an alliance. Yeah. In a lot of these situations. Yeah. But Walt, who I like calling Walt, so I'm just gonna keep calling Walt. (laughs) Walt is also where we get the Samru part of this whole Begum Samru name. So the name Somber, so he was Walter Reinhardt Somber. This is kind of a nickname that was added onto the end of his name, apparently because he was quite of quite somber countenance, yeah. If we can believe that. Oh. But the somber part became Samru to the Indians because that was the pronunciation. They couldn't say the mm-hmm. French somber, mm-hmm. so it ended up Samru. Samru. Okay, good. And the begum that comes in front of it is that feminine title for a wife or a daughter of a ruling bey, which I think is amazing. A bey, ruling bey. Which is basically oh. like a ruler. Oh. I know, a bey. A ruling bey. Ruling bey gets his begum. And. <laughs> Oh, no, it's great. Or, as I said, for a lady of high-ranking social status or accomplishment, or power.
1: Uh, now, you said that very pointedly and you literally pointed at me when you said that. did. So Those we've got to keep that in mind. Who can't see through the
0: magic of audio. <laughs> the magic of audio. It's not visual. <laughs> now, whether or not Walt married her straight up or if he married her later on, which is also possible, they were eventually married and so she takes that Samru from his name. Now, in taking up with Walter Fazana. Her world suddenly went from dancing to fighting.
1: To fighting. To fighting.
0: Oh, we haven't had a good swashbuckler in ages. She. We haven't been with a swashbuckling lady since
1: Ching Shi. That's what I mean. That's yes. why these stories are, are
0: very similar.
1: I miss swashbuckling
0: ladies. Well, we're bringing it back. So as I said, Walt was shopping all over the place in terms of his loyalties and – his mercenary army at the stage where he met Farzana, they were working for the Mughal Empire. And that was the long-ruling elite of India. Mm-hmm. So the Mughal Empire had been in power from about the 1500s and it wasn't formally dissolved until the middle of the 19th century. So, well, it was an empire. Because the yeah. empires in it. Oh, good. It. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad it's good you know. Clarified. Yeah, uh, and at its height, it stretched across a huge area of southern Asia, from Afghanistan to Kashmir to Bangladesh, and it's kind of at the point of Fazana's story where it starts to dissolve, and those colonial European powers start to come in mm. and to take over. So um, they liked doing that,
1: didn't they? They
0: loved it. They were big on a bit of colonialism. Yeah. So, Walt had thrown his mercenary army in with the Mughal empire. He thought that this was the best place to be. That's at the this place time. to align himself. Yes, for success. Correct. And his private army comprised mainly of European officers and Indian soldiers. So a little bit of favouritism yeah. happening there. Yeah, cannon fodder of the locals <laughs> and higher so echelons officers. of the mm-hmm. yes, gentlemen. Yes. Shall we have a gin? Yes, well, we send off the local Indians as cannon fodder mm. out the front. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there were Frenchmen, Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotsmen, Italians, Portuguese, Germans, Polish, Belgians, Armenians and Jats all fighting together for somber. Jats? They were... Well, Not they the crookers. No, they still are from a particular region of India. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. This army was a hodgepodge of other mercenaries. Very international. Who were just there for the dollars yeah. again. And their loyalties were Where willing to the go. the wind blew most richly. Exactly. So – at the time of Farzana and Walt, <laughs> doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't, doesn't, no. well doesn't ring in well in the ear. No. The Mughal Empire was ruled over by Shah Alam II and he was the 16th Mughal Emperor at the time. But at the time of his reign, as I said, that empire had really started to break up. And India was being endlessly bombarded at this time by Afghans, Sikhs, Jats again, loads of rival rulers, the British, the French, everybody was in on it. <laughs> and there were many wars and skirmishes yeah, and shifting alliances. Sounds hackers. I'm not going to go into detail about them all, all right? But what the take-home
1: message here is shit was going down. It was pretty chaotic. And the mercenary
0: life was good. It was good life. Wealthy time. It was. And... Walt had thrown his law in with the Shah and befriended him. Now Farzana, she wasn't going to be left out. She wanted in on the fray. And she took to her new military life with husband Walt with gusto. Of course she did. And she learned everything she could about warfare and strategy (laughs) as well as how to manage and command troops. Wow. She became an excellent horsewoman as well as a terrific fighter on the battlefield. Uh, Was she kind of like a cavalry then if she's on a horse and swinging her sword? Yeah, and she would ride out alongside Walt and the other mercenaries. Wow. And apparently she was a bit of a sight on the battlefield because, well, she was short on a horse even. Yeah, 4'11". And she would come in charging on her (laughs) horse, wearing a turban and swinging around (laughs) with her sword. So she was quite the sight to behold. Wow, that's excellent. A British Lieutenant Colonel named James Brasset, who wrote a memoir from the time, he wrote that the people who knew the Begum by reputation believed her to be a witch who destroyed her enemies by throwing her Shadir, which is her veil, at them. <gasps> yes. So this idea yes! that she was right out onto the battlefield. Fuck yes. And she could destroy you she simply. She throws her veil at you and you're dead. And that's all it Ugh. takes.
1: Yes. Love it. What a great mythology to have built up around you. And
0: apparently this story. Love for people to believe that about me. This story spread so much that. People would actually turn and flee from her <gasps> because they were scared that her, her witchcraft was going to kill You're them not. if her sword didn't.
1: Yes, so yes,
0: I'm behind this. <laughs> you are. You're so excited. You turned. You turned me around on this one. <laughs> okay, good. So one of these campaigns that they rode out in was against the Jats, who I mentioned traditionally from the northern region of India and into Pakistan. And they'd typically been an agricultural people until the 17th century when the Hindu Jats went in against the Mughal Empire along with pretty much everybody else. Uh So in this particular battle, their efforts were quashed by Walt and Co., who I've decided is the name of the army. And the emperor rewarded Walt by giving him an estate called Sardana, which was 18 kilometres northwest of Mirat and he also received an annual revenue of 600,000 rupees. That sounds like a lot. Which is, How I many rupees think, is that in today's rupees? Almost about 300 million <gasps> or something like that in today's <gasps> value. <laughs> rupees? Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Quite a lot. So he went very quickly from being a mercenary to being like a landed it magnet, basically. Basic, yeah. And he was appointed civil and military governor as well. So he rose up the ranks pretty quickly and this is great for him but it's also pretty good for her so she continued to ride by his side into battle and they weren't actually together all that long before walt died in 1778 <gasps> uh-huh. of natural causes and so is she
1: going to step up well like our friend Xingxi.
0: let us see let me lick my finger and turn the page <laughs> and we'll see. So Fazana wanted to carry on leading the troops. And the problem here was that, now, I don't know if I mentioned this or not before, but even when Samba married Farzana, he already did have a wife. You didn't mention that, but I'm not surprised. It's not surprising. And a child, of course. Of course. So there was only some, one. Yeah, well, possibly more. So there was some conflict about who was going to be in charge. Mm. Now, technically. Again, this bears some similarities with Shi, right? It does. Yeah. Yes. Now, technically, it should have been the more legitimate son mm. that would step into the, the role. Yeah. But again, some varying stories. So, some stories suggest that at the time of Somba's death, he was only a minor, so he couldn't step into the position. But some other accounts suggest that he had an intellectual disability, oh. and so the troops didn't want him right. to lead. Okay, so had
1: she had a child with him? No,
0: they had had no children. Hmm. So Somber's remaining eighty-two European officers and four thousand troops. Wow petitioned the Emperor Shah Alam to declare Farzana as his successor and the Shah agreed. So regardless of whether his son was too young or whether or not he did indeed have an intellectual disability, he was shafted. Out. He was out. Because the troops respected and wanted her to leave. See, this is it, isn't it? Like that's how you know. I feel
1: like in order to gain the respect of all of those Officers and the men of so many different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds as a woman, fuck me, as a, look, let's be honest, woman of colour as well. Jesus. Who's
0: risen up from the bottom of the heap.
1: That's incredible. She must have been like, my brain wanted to say she must have been dope and that's not a thing that I would ever really say, but (laughs) she must have been pretty fucking dope Uh, if that's the word that's where my brain went i like it she must have been great person who often says the word no it's not really in my repertoire she must have been rad that's much more in my repertoire yeah she
0: was pretty rad now somber had been a catholic because he was like a lapsed catholic is that
1: what you say had been no no just he was dead Well, you could have just said was.
0: Okay, sure. I mean
1: grammatically had been would suggest that he was
0: lapsed. Samba was a Catholic (laughs) prior to his death. Okay, At which point death stopped him from being a Catholic anymore. Depends. Maybe, unless he continued on. Unless he went to Catholic heaven. In the afterlife (laughs) as a Catholic. But Farzana herself was pretty interested in Catholicism. She'd been greatly affected by a Catholic priest named Father Gregorio and when she heard the story of Joan of Arc, yes, she was mightily impressed. Oh, fuck. Of course she was. And perhaps... This is why we need female heroes. This is why we need to tell these stories. Because they inspire the next generation of war-leading women. (laughs) War ladies. War ladies. So perhaps as well, she saw some of herself in Joan of Arc's story and she was baptised with a new Catholic name of Joanna. Joanna. On May the 7th, 1781. That's where it comes from. That makes so much more sense. That's why she's Joanna
1: because that's...
0: Now you see where that comes from. She's naming
1: herself a Joan.
0: That's right. So in 1781, she fully converted, took on this new name of Joanna, and even though she did convert to Catholicism, she continued to sort of live her day-to-day life by the rules of the larger Muslim nobility. So she would conduct business affairs from behind a screen and she continued to observe Islamic religious holidays, and that was her day-to-day life. Her conversion was definitely by choice and... It may have been as much for ease of dealing with her own largely Christian offices as well as the Mm. rising power of the British as it was with her actual belief systems. So it was probably also a melding of... A bit of of... political kind of stuff as well. Exactly. Yeah. She did later on build a large church in Sardana, which still stands today. Um, And there's a marble statue of her inside of it on top of her tomb as well. So you can go and visit it. I would um, like to go to the and she also apparently corresponded with the pope in rome huh. as well so she definitely was on board with <laughs> what? the consultant yeah
1: Jeez. as you do all right cool no worries that's i'm sure easy to do as a young woman of color war lady just send a letter to the pope dear mr
0: pope yeah but corresponding my with name the pope, is man. joanna <laughs> i have all your records could you please send me an autograph? I loved you. Love loved <laughs> Joanna. That's me writing a letter to Ice House in like 1987. Uh-huh. Just so you know. Good. And then I got a letter back. Did you? Yeah. How exciting. So exciting. Anyway. <laughs> so regardless of her faith, she continued defending the Mughal Empire. So in 1783, a 30,000-strong Sikh army were encamped just outside the walls of Delhi, and it was Fazana who managed to hold them off and crush their attempt on the capital. Ooh. Crushed. S- yeah. So this, of course, put her in pretty good stead with Shah Alam with the Emperor. And in another battle, she saved Shah Alam himself from death and he repaid her with the title of Most Beloved Daughter, which is a pretty good title. But no rubies
1: or emeralds. Well,
0: no, she gets rewarded. Sapphires. No, she gets rewarded pretty well for her services to the Emperor. So after the Emperor was saved and restored to the throne, he bestowed on her. The title of zeb an which means ornament of women. Oh. Now, this title is often sort of substituted at the end of her name as a surname, sometimes kind of referred to her full name as Fazana zeb an But that's not actually her birth name, even yeah. though sometimes she's incorrectly okay. sort of known as that. But it was a title that was given mm, to like her. Like an honorarium. That's right, yeah. And so she was eventually gifted another plot of land in Delhi ...as a reward for her fabulous services. Fabulous. A fabulous services. As a reward for your fabulous services. Here's some land in That's Delhi. That's what they said. That is exact words. Verbatim. And here she built a garden and a palace. And the palace is still standing today. Oh. But, Lauren. Oh, no. Look, it's fallen to a bit of disrepair... I think history has made everybody forget what it originally was and why it was originally there. And it's now a bank. Oh. The interior of it's a bank. And it was ransacked and and destroyed over the centuries. And the surrounding area, which once were her beautiful gardens... Well, I was going to say, I'm assuming there's no more gardens there. No. Now it's sort of just encroached upon by an electronics flea market, apparently. Oh. And just a whole oh. bunch of buildings have encroached on it. But okay. if you can imagine, you know, somewhere in this kind of dense milieu of so urban life iPhones. of second yeah. Is a palace yeah. <laughs> which is now a bank. Wow. <laughs> but, so but, but I mean there's so many palaces in India that are now Various things. Yeah. I think there have been some movements to try to restore some, at least to kind of place a plaque on the front Mm. so that you know, and some movements to kind of restore it to its former grandeur. Now, she was also a very clever strategist, as I mentioned. I think we can have assumed that if you didn't tell us directly. Yeah. But she could also be ruthless, which, of course, I think we can see is going to be the case. And... One particular story from the time which I might just read for you verbatim uh-huh. if that's okay is about how she made a bit of a example of two slave girls that worked in her house. Oh
1: god. So where's this story going?
0: Yeah. So while she was encamped with the army News was one day brought to her that two slave girls had set fire to her houses at Agra Mm. in order that they might make off with their paramours, two soldiers of the guard she had left in charge. These houses had thatched roofs and contained all her valuables and the widows, wives and children of her principal officers. The fire had been put out with much difficulty and great loss of property and the two slave girls were soon after discovered in the bazaar at Agra and brought out to the Begum's camp. She had the affair investigated in the usual summary form, and their guilt being proved to the satisfaction of all present, she had them flogged <gasps> till they were senseless and then thrown into a pit dug in front of her tent for the purpose and buried alive. Oh, fuck me. So she knew how to make oh. an example. And. I suppose you know. Obviously, they were senseless and buried alive. Now, obviously, you know, we do not condone such acts. That is my literal worst nightmare. You can imagine that a woman in her position, yeah, she has to make. A stand. She has to make an example. People need to be afraid of her. Isn't it funny how because of the gender
1: difference, because of the fact that she's a woman who's doing this, not that we can make these allowances, but it's perhaps easier to be like, Yeah, but she had to prove herself and Mm. she had so much at stake. And the fact that she was in such a position in the first place was such an anomaly that she has to kind of overcompensate is perhaps not the word, but do you know what I mean? Like Mm. she does have to perform this kind of power because she's not really supposed to have it, Yeah, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas if a man had been doing it, we would just sort of be like, oh. Yeah, typical That's standard, whatever, yeah. you know. And of course, it would be abhorrent and disgusting. And we would be like, oh my God, I can't believe he buried them alive. But I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I just wanted mm. to comment on it that I think it is interesting that when it's a woman who's doing it, we can both be more outraged and more forgiving at the same time. Yeah, because it it's seems weird, kind of.
0: Because yeah, cognitive seems, dissonance, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess it comes back to that concept we've talked about before, whereas it seems so much more monstrous because it seems against the natural... Quote, unquote, natural. Exactly. Mm. The quote, unquote, natural sort of way that a woman should behave... But or anyone should behave. No one should be flogging people and burying them alive. But if a male leader does it, we, that's par for the course, mm. right? And a male leader would do that a thousand times and nobody would bat an eye. Yeah. And they're doing exactly the same thing, though. Yeah. They're only doing that to cement their leadership. But also a woman has, leadership.
1: To, has to be extreme and she has to reach mm. those
0: yeah. kinds
1: of levels. And this, I think, is something that we were talking about when we were talking about Rana Volovna a few episodes ago as well and the fact that a lot of the acts that she did as leader in madagascar Mm. was so outrageous and over the top but it's also kind of tied up with that perception of power and a perception of a particularly masculine kind of power i think as well in order to garner respect garner power through fear Mm. you know you can't be a
0: nurturing leader as a queen because then you're a pushover no one will yeah no one will respect you Yeah and I think that this you know we see parallels in many of the fighting women that we've mm. talked about in the past mm. to this kind of ruthless I suppose is the word that we use for it behavior yeah. in order to make an impression and in order to keep control yeah. because you can't you seem can't show any vulnerable weakness. yeah that's totally. right so she's still fighting away leading her troops But she also needs a good commander by her side. Oh, all right. Is there room for a lover? There may well be. So uh, she found herself. Isn't it funny that I
1: immediately assumed that her commander would be her lover? I feel like if
0: (laughs) I was, you know, what if I was the leader of a mercenary army? I think all my commanders would be my lovers. You have a harem of lovers. I would, yeah. I'd be living it up. <laughs> so she found herself another European mercenary who was, yes, also her lover, and he was killed pretty quickly. So <laughs> okay. we'll move on from him. We'll brush okay. over him. Well, I'm glad he made it into the story. <laughs> so <am I. laughs> So we'll brush over him to the next replacement lover slash next commander. Lover. Bring him on next. So the next guy in the scene was an Irish mercenary mm-hmm. named George Thomas. Now, he apparently was quite a dashing sailor type yeah, well like, like george thomas row. He i don't a... know if the irishmen are very wow kind of wow he was from tipperary and he ended up actually getting the title of a raj and oh. was known as the rajah of tipperary wow but that's not just yet in his story now uh, georgie boy he'd been around when Barzana had saved the shah's life right yep. he was in on that so he was a fairly popular guy but things got a little murky and he, you know, he was there as the commander and they were getting along fine. Things got a little murky when in 1790, another guy. Uh-huh. Another commander. Came on the scene. This From... time, a Frenchman. Oh,
1: oh la la. Uh-huh.
0: Oui, oui. <laughs> Named Levasseur. Oh, mm. goodness. Now um, we're going to start making funny French accents. Mon cher Levasseur. I don't know what you're saying. No, oui, oui. Ah, ma petit chou. Uh, which I think means my little cabbage. Yeah, my yeah. little cabbage. Yeah. Well, shoo, shoo. I'm sure he called her that. <laughs> Ma shushu, then. Ma shushu. Oui. So she and Frenchie hit it off straight away because, you know, he talks like that. He's clearly. Oui. Now they got very friendly. But of course, this drove a wedge between her and Georgie Boy. Oh, Irish. H. Old Irish Georgie boy, from Tipperary. It's from Tipperary, whose accent was also sexy. But yes. you oh know, oh God, how do you choose? How do you choose them? between those accents? Oh, Irish v French. I don't know what to choose. Oh. Can you have an Irish French accent? Can it be done? That would be the sexiest accent in the world if it could be done. To any uh, fr- fans out there who are Irish French? Could you just um, <laughs> send us a sexy recording of you speaking? <laughs> Anywho, so Frenchie and Irishman, George got the shits.
1: Yeah, right. With this new
0: Frenchie on the scene. No, they're not. Because George is basically just going to have a fucking hissy fit. And he's going to (laughs) resign. Oh, he's like, fuck it. it. I'm out. out." If you like Frenchie Boy, you have Frenchie Boy. And he storms out and slams the door. Now, he went off and joined another army. So on the lowdown, she and Frenchie got married. Ooh. I'm just calling him Frenchy <laughs> because I struggle to pronounce his name. Fair enough. So they got married in 1793, but they got married in secret yeah. because he was not popular oh. at all. Well, he lacked any real military experience. Mm. He was seen as arrogant and tactless. Well, and French. Lauren. <laughs> Sorry. You can't say that. was that. a stereotype you that I was playing that. on. Sure it was. But apparently he would openly and inappropriately be familiar with Fazana in public, right? Obviously having some public displays of affection, which, of of course, totally unacceptable. Oh, yeah. Completely unacceptable. Mm. Not just for her Indian counterparts, but also for the sensibilities of the British, of the other Europeans, maybe not of the other French people, but... Hey, not acceptable. No bum pinching in this land. But it seems like she might really have loved him because she struggled hard to make the troops like him. She wanted them to find some kind of way to accept him, some kind of common ground, but they simply hated him. Now this hatred grew and grew until finally they started to fear for their lives. What? And the army (gasps) disliked him this much. So in a move that would see her prize love over everything else, the Begum and the Frenchie decided to flee together in the dark of night. Whoa, she's giving up a lot. She's giving up her whole... Holy shit. Basically an empire. She must really love him. She really loves this guy. Man, this would make a really great Disney cartoon. Well, yes, that's true. I think there was actually plans to make a Bollywood movie wow. a couple of years ago, but I don't think it ever got off the ground. Wow. But if anybody would like to make... encourage that. A, if anybody would like to make a Bollywood movie of this, please, please. hurry up and do that because it would be amazing. Yes. So they conspired with the British as well to provide them safe passage through the British Territory to a French settlement where yeah. they could be safely away from their own mercenary army. Old Georgie boy got wind of these plans as well while he was stationed <laughs> in Delhi. So he heard about this. Now, on the night of their escape, they rode out together in the dark of night. The the Begum rode in a palanquin, which is like a, mm. a litter that's carried mm. by a couple of people on men. those men, yeah. on those sticks on your shoulder. You know the thing I'm I talking about. I do know. Yes. I do. Okay, good. Thank you. My description yes. of that was not going well. I knew
1: what it was immediately. Excellent.
0: But... Thanks. Our listeners may have needed a description. Good. And that was not a very good one. (laughs) Um, Normally, they carry just sort of one person, but this one was large enough for her to have a few female attendants with her as well. And the Frenchman rode ahead on his horse. They already feared that they might not make it. And so they had entered into a suicide pact in case anything was to go wrong. Fucking hardcore. So she really did love him, right? Wow. Now. That's so hardcore. They were right that things were going to go wrong. Mm. They were right about the wrongness because her own troops got wind of what was happening, probs from old Georgie boy. Uh Uh-huh. And the troops set out after them. Yeah. All right. Some kind of horse noises. (laughs) All right. Just building the atmosphere. Okay. They hadn't travelled far when there were gunshots. (gasps) I'm really invested in the story. You should be too. And the Frenchman heard screams yeah. coming from the Begum's litter. He's yeah. like, "Oh fuck, what's going on?" He rushed back on his horse, and he found the <sighs> Begum inside the litter covered in blood. Oh my god. Her dress red with blood and her female attendants screaming and wailing on hearing <laughs> the gunshots she'd feared I, that the frenchie I don't had mean, been this is killed an actual fucking romeo and juliet situation where she has preemptively killed herself assuming that her lover was dead exactly <gasps> she has stabbed herself because she's heard gunshots and she thinks it means that frenchie <gasps> has been killed georgie boy is paris and true to her word she stabs herself <gasps> in the chest oh my god it is a real life romeo and juliet situation so the frenchman is looking in the litter at her covered in blood and now he's
1: gonna kill himself
0: and he takes no hesitation he draws his pistol from the hilt he places it to his temple he (gasps) pulls the trigger holy shit dude does she then wake up one account (laughs) of this story is that The shot to his head was so much that it lifted him out of the saddle of the horse. Whoa! He could have escaped. He was on that horse, but he was stayed true to their (gasps) pact. That's and he died in the saddle. It's very the Highwayman as well, which is one of my favorite poems. But we don't need to go into that. That is unreal. Except she wasn't dead. She stabbed herself very
1: inefficiently. Yeah, it's hard to die via stabbing. Whoopsie. So she did fucking Romeo and Juliet she's not dead. She's not she's dead. She's going to wake up and he's dead and now she's going to have to kill herself she's again. She's not
0: dead. Oh, She'd hit
1: Jesus. A rib. Of course. Do you know this is why stabbing victims have so many wounds? Because it's actually really hard to die
0: from just one stab wound. You have to do it over and you over again. You have to again. do it multiple times. And she had managed to wound herself pretty fucking badly. But not, but not to die. Not Fatally. Yeah. Sorry, Frenchie.
1: Classic stabbing suicide pack. Frenchie dead on the road. Jesus. So. Just uh, take a minute to fucking breathe,
0: people. (laughs) Just think about it. Just take stock of the situation. Before you do something drastic. But it was a suicide pact. And I think that's pretty drastic. So.
1: In the first place. Hardcore romantic. Capital R romantic, isn't it?
0: So her troops caught up with this scene this massacre scene of blood, and they captured her and yeah. took her back, keeping her prisoner. Now for a week, <laughs> they locked her up, denied her food and water, and she only survived because of her female attendants, who secretly mm. brought her food mm. and secretly tended to her wounds so and kept why her you alive. Need some good friends, isn't it? Good well, lady friends. She did have also still a friend in Georgie Boy. Oh and because old georgie redeems himself here and he comes back to her and it's his influence that restores her to her position of power and ends the mutiny <gasps> and brings oh, wow. brings those forces back to realizing that no, she still is worthy of her role. She still is worthy of being the leader of this army. So he convinces them to put her back into her position of power. But this is the end of her relationship with George altogether. He's basically, he comes back, he does this one last altruistic thing to help her after everything that's happened between them. After her running away with this other guy, he comes back, helps her and then... He leaves, <sighs> never to be heard of in her life again. Oh, fuck. That's it. He goes. Oh,
1: Jesus. Okay, I revised my this should be a Disney movie statement. Um, this should be like a Baz
0: Luhrmann film. No. I hate Baz Luhrmann. Oh, we know do, how I feel you? like how I feel about Baz Luhrmann. But we will start our own film. We'll record our own All oh, right. No, it should be a Bollywood film. Yeah. Just yeah, like, right. it was, it it, like it was it, it – like should. the plan was, which I still feel this plan should come to fruition. So – After this, she continued to fight only really for a few more years. Her heart wasn't
1: in it anymore.
0: I guess her heart wasn't in it anymore. Mm. Love had come and gone. She'd been through a lot by this stage. And so she finally accepted British protection in 1808. And things were changing in India. I guess that she'd accepted things were changing, Mm. that the British were really coming into power. And she could see the writing on the wall. And she knew it was time to get out. Again, much like Xingqiu, was the kind of person who was willing to stop fighting like and to concede when she saw yeah. that. That's a sensible woman. You could step her back. pride is
1: not getting in the way of
0: her good sense. That's right. So the See new- Step go- it comes to love. Yeah, very much so. And suicide <laughs> packs. So the new Governor General, Lord Cornwallis, decided to leave her in charge of her lands. But- asked her to sort of remain in a position where she kept her eye out and would sort of help them in terms of, ascertaining you know any anti-British sentiment and any anti-British elements so she kind of kept up her role looking out for them but not necessarily fighting Mm. not coming out as Mm. a fighter in battle so the British had their own reasons to make peace with her as well because you know they wanted her influence because she had a huge influence over loads of local powerful rulers and they also wanted her to kind of convince these other rulers that they should also trust the British and come on board with the British. So she also had this role as kind of a go-to between them, I suppose. Mm. Now she turned away from fighting to focus on more charitable activities and to focus on religious activities as well. So including, as I said before, focusing on building... The church that you can still visit today where her tomb is. So she was interested in starting to sort of manage the agricultural affairs of her lands and through lots of sort of revenue settlements and equitable partnerships and through kind of settling a lot of disputes, uh, she managed to relieve her own sort of peasantry of indebtedness. And this led to improvements in agriculture. Mm. It won her the support of the peasantry and it added financial stability to her rule as she's well. She's actually also a good landowner and ruler. Yeah. And she's raking in the cash. Of course. So she lived in great wealth and splendor for another. And she time. was still liked by the people. And she was still loved wow. by the people. Wow. That's a combination that's hard to manage. And also, it means that she lives out her life for the next three decades. <laughs> Quite comfortably. Quite comfortably, in peace, until her death in 1836. Wow. So by the time she died, she was immensely rich. (laughs) Her inheritance was assessed at approximately 55.5 million gold marks in 1923 and 18 billion Deutschmarks in 1953. I don't know what any of that means. Which I don't know what any of that means either, but it's a lot. Sounds like a lot. It's a lot. And her inheritance is actually still disputed Even now.
1: Whoa. So are these like her descendants?
0: Yeah, because really interesting. She selected to sort of inherit her estates. She selected a guy called David Somba. Walter was his great grandfather Uh by Walter's other wife, right? Not the Begum. But he had a really interesting history where he ended up going to England and marrying this really aristocratic wealthy woman who then charged him with lunacy, put him in an asylum <laughs> to take all of his money. He escaped. That's the opposite way around than it normally is. I know. He escaped. He went to Europe. He wrote like a pamphlet declaring his sanity <laughs> and continued to try and fight for these estates and this money for like the rest of his life but this is where that sort of estate ended up and this is why it's never really been resolved. Wow. So that pretty much brings us to the end of today's tale. Wow. Someone who I think, yeah, again, those kind of parallels and that rise to power and knowing when to step back Mm. from the fighting to just be like, well, you know what, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life comfortably with my wealth and with Because she doesn't have that ego that's just like, no,
1: I'm the greatest. I got to keep going. I got a reputation. Yeah. Blah blah blah. know, she's just like, "Mm, nah, I'm done. I had a really good run at it. I fought. I loved. I swashbuckled, and now I'm gonna just live my life comfortably. Yeah.
0: I lived a pretty impressive life, and now I'm just gonna retire in comfort. Thank you very much. How
1: wild is that story about the suicide pact? Though I know. I
0: can't believe that's real. It's pretty impressive really happened well so according to the legend so no well i mean that account does come from a text a few different texts Mm. written at the time and lots of these texts were written by british military heroes who were there who knew her who Mm. knew the stories i guess there is an element of myth and legend to them as well Mm. we don't you know there's no kind of Proof in terms of verifiable film or footage or whatever. All we have to go by are these oral stories and accounts. Which we do in so
1: many cases.
0: That's right. So
1: I guess we take it as it is and, well, this is where...
0: But it makes a great fucking story. It's a fucking
1: great story. It is. And that's what... I mean, that's what we're interested in ultimately, isn't it? It's the stories that get handed down to us, the stories that make their imprint in the cultural kind of fabric that, Mm. you know, continues to inform us today.
0: So I hope she's been, again, as we talked about, that sort of that distance of time, despite the fact that her life really did have a lot of darkness, you Mm. know, and some of those moments are incredibly heart-wrenching. I do hope she was a little bit more fun- This time around. I think as
1: soon as we have a swashbuckling woman, it's just like all hands on deck for fun
0: times. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah. And I think, look, pretty fucking fabulous. And I was so happy when I discovered her. I was like, yes, this is where we're (laughs) going. She's the one. She's the one. She's where we're going next. And look, make that Bollywood film, please, please, ASAP. Please asap. We will be there to yep, watch it. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for telling that story. That is definitely a much lighter story than our last few have been. So it's good to bring some some light, some laughs, some swashbuckling into the podcast. For those of you in our audience who do like a darker story there is the last three episodes that you can (laughs) catch up on for sure uh any ideas we're going to be going next time lauren so i really wanted to delve into some like hollywood glam yes so i'm going to do some glamorous hollywood stories for that it's glamorous hollywood story next week
0: Great, excellent! I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, and then of course, in the meantime, you can catch up on all our past episodes. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever
1: you get your podcasts. And if you really love the show and you want to support us, you can do so for as little as two dollars a month on Patreon. We have all kinds of behind-the-scenes content, extra episodes, blooper reels, plus the odd video or two. And we love our patrons so much; they are the grease in the wheels of this podcast, really.
0: And Of course, you can buy yourself some Divian Women bling. You can get T-shirts and pins on our Etsy store. And if you don't have the literal funds to support us, you
1: can still support us by spreading the good word, tell your friends, like and subscribe, leave us a review.
0: That means so much to us. It sure does. So, as always, thank you very much to India Hui for the music and to Brendan Davies for the sound. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.